Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. If I'm dead to sin, why do I sin so much? And I, you're going to witness a miracle. I'm going to take less than five minutes to review the last two weeks. So to do that, let's go to Romans chapter 7, verse 24, and we're going to read through verse 2 of chapter 8. And keep in mind, in Paul's writings, Paul always follows in his epistles, in his letters, he follows a general pattern where he will take the first half of a letter and tell you all the things that Jesus died for and gave you in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the second half of his letter, he will, uh, and usually it will say, um, well, Romans 12, it says, now, therefore, you'll always find that word. Since Jesus did all of this, these are the requirements. In fact, last week I was telling Pastor, I, I brought up about, and I didn't name him, but I'll name him today. Everybody knows about it. Colin Kaepernick and him not standing for the national anthem. And, and it's, I could care less what the man does. But it's become a controversy. But in, in every conversation I've heard about this, what you hear the, somewhere in the comments, you're going to hear, well, that's his right of free speech. Well, I agree. But in my thinking, if you're going to tell me about what your rights are, first what I want to hear, more important than your rights, or what are your responsibilities and how are you meeting those responsibilities? We have a lot of rights in Christ. I, I, in fact, I, I put me in remembrance when my son was in college, his first real job, working at the Corps of Engineers, summer internship. Uh, he had two major um, eye-opening experiences. His first one was when he got his first paycheck and he opened it up and there was one line for what he earned and then there were about 19 lines for all the deductions that came out of what he earned. And he came home hot. Wh who's stealing my money? And oh, his first time he ever got an, it was an eye-opener of what taxes do to your paycheck. And the second one was, he came to me one day and he said, Dad, you lied to me. And it's like, I lied to you? He said, yeah, you told me when I got to college and I'd get all these freedoms and you'd consider me an adult and, and I'd have all these freedoms. You didn't tell me that responsibility came with those freedoms. Well, I said, that wasn't necessarily a lie. It was just a major omission because you don't understand it till you get there. Well, there are all kinds of things that Christ has done for us that give us rights. But those rights also have attached to them responsibilities. And because we don't sometimes do the responsible thing, we don't get to necessarily walk in the rights the way we want to be able to walk in the rights. That's the whole underlying theme of this. But Paul in, in, in Romans 7, verse 24 and 25, and then the first two verses of, of chapter 8, he goes through our old state and then brings us into the new born-again state. Verse 24 Paul is, he, he's beside himself. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's declaring right there, I am completely controlled by my flesh. And then he says in verse 25, the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then he goes even beyond that in, in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that, I've heard people say, well, yeah, see, there's no condemnation if you're walking according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. No, that's not what that's saying. This is not a, a, a condition of having no condemnation. It's a condition of the new birth. We do not, because there is no condemnation, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why? Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. 
I am free of the law of sin and death. Therefore, Christ is not condemning me. Therefore, I'm, I am open and able to walk in the spirit. Now, does that mean that it's not possible for me to sow to my flesh? No, that's <clears throat> that is very possible. And to be honest with you, it's uh, it's a great pastime for most Christians. It's just a spiritual fact. No, it's not a spiritual fact, but it's a natural fact. Doesn't mean it's a profitable fact, but it is still a fact. We can sow to the flesh and we will reap from the flesh. But Christ has given you the opportunity the, the right, no matter how immersed you are in the pig pen, you can be, you're not neck deep in the slop. You're over your head. You'd have to swim 20 feet to get to the surface of the pig manure. But anytime you want to step out of it, it's instantaneous. All you have to do is say, Father, deliver me from this. And he pulls you out. He cleans you up and he says, all right, now. Let's start living by your responsibilities. Let's don't go back and visit that again. The problem is, and, and I've seen this in a lot of Christians. I've, I saw it in myself for a while. But I, I normally notice it in people that they will, you'll see them at church. You'll, they'll, they'll come call the pastor, visit the pastor. I'm just, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm in trouble. I need help. And you help them out, sometimes financially, sometimes with, with counseling. You, you, you get them back on the straight and narrow, and their life starts to straighten up, and the next thing you know, you don't see them for six months. And then they're back again. Oh, life's just overwhelming me. I've got these problems. I've got this and that and that. And then they come back, and they get counseling, and they pray, and they start all of these disciplines, and things start running right, and they quit. And they're in and out. They're up and down. Why? Because they're not consistently staying in this. That brought us to where we are today. How do we, when we ended last week, we were in Ephesians 6. So let's go over to Ephesians 6, start in verse 10. And Paul is going to make this point. He says in verse 10, finally, my brethren, he's, he's already into, since Jesus did all this, this is what we need to do. And he's wrapping it up. He's making his summation. This is much like, and I, 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 I hate to put this on Paul, <clears throat> but Paul is much like a, a lawyer. He lays out his case. And if you know anything about the, the law, there are two, I mean, there is presenting the evidence, but the two most important things that you can do as a lawyer when you're in a trial is your opening statement it needs to get everybody's attention and point to what you're going to do. And then your closing statement is the last word you get to say to that jury before they go decide your client's fate. This is Paul's closing statement. That's why he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He's saying Jesus has all of this inherent Strength, that's his might. The power that he's talking about is when God takes that, that inherent strength and applies it to a problem or a situation that you are in. Or what we're going to look at today, more importantly, you take that might that's inherent in God that he's given you a right to use and you apply his might and exercise authority and power to your situation. Now, to see that, hold your place there in, in Ephesians 6. We will be back. But turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul following the exact same pattern he did in Romans. And he's stating here in, in Ephesians 2 verse 1, he says this authority, this right that you have to exercise God's might, God's inherent power. Let's face it. You can take the most unbelieving unbeliever, most of them will admit that there, there is at least the possibility of God. If not, they will admit, yeah, I do believe in a supreme power. Now, they'll define that power in a lot of different crazy ways. Usually, whatever fits their lifestyle. Amen? But they, they, they are ready to admit that, yes, there is a God. But the, the problem here is, is how does God interact with us? 
What does he do for us? What has he done for us? Well, in, in chapter 2 here, verse 1, it says, very first thing, and you, speaking to you individually. Now, this is, a, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, but it's applicable to you. This is a personal, you can take out that you, that Y-O-U, put your first name in there. Or put your name, your first name in afterwards. You, Fred Jones. You, Marcy, whatever. Put your name right in there. It's addressed to you personally. You, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Not only did he deliver you out of the power of the enemy, drop down to verse 4, but it says, but God who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He didn't just make us alive, he made us alive in him. He so identifies with your new life that he says, when I look at you, I see me. Now, a lot of us have kids. And a lot of people have kids and they say, well, you know, uh, Johnny so-and-so has his mom's eyes and his dad's nose and, you know, his grandma's mouth. Well, Jesus, when he, when he recreated you, he created you his twin. When he looks at you, he sees, it, it's like him looking in the mirror. Now, I'm telling you, for a lot of people that, well, for a lot of people, that's heresy. No, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm a worm crawling through this. How dare you say that Jesus made me just like him? I didn't. The Bible says it. Right there. He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Not only did he make you like him, verse 6 says, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, how am I sitting in the heavenly places? Because Christ is sitting in the heavenly places. There is a throne in heaven. The Father is sitting on that throne. And at the right hand of that throne is a second throne that Jesus is sitting in. The right hand, if you know anything about ancient cultures, the right hand of the, of the, the king is the position of authority. Jesus is in the position of authority in the kingdom of God. He said it in, in the Gospels, in, in the Great Commission. We'll look at it later. He said, all authority has been given unto me. Well, if we are seated with him, then in him, I have that authority. He not only looks in the mirror and sees, when he looks at me, it's like he's looking in the mirror and seeing himself. But when I speak, it's the same as him speaking. At least when I'm speaking his word. I'll get into that more later. And then drop down, you're still in Ephesians 2, drop down to um, verse 19. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're going to look later because we're, we're, um, uh, we're going to take communion in... Um, um, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, we are the body of Christ. Doesn't mean we are Christ, but I am, I am his representative. I am a member of the body. So individually, I stand in that position of authority. Amen? Now, go back to um, chapter 6 of Ephesians. On, on down in, in verse 11, well, for, let's reread verse 10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then verse 11, he's going to tell you how to do that. How can I be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? Well, I, put, I do that by putting on the whole armor of God that I may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
Now you're going to see in from, from verse 11 through verse 13, you're going to see twice in the New King James the word stand and once withstand. Same, the, the withstand is a little bit different. It means to not just stand, but to stand against. You're in opposition to something. But, but the key I want you to see in all three of these instances, that word there in all three cases is a verb. It's not a noun. This is not a passive activity. I, I, I thought of the um, um, example, some of you youngsters may not remember him, and I'm not going to ask you to hold your hand up and identify yourself as being old enough to remember him, but William F. Buckley was a fairly famous political commentator. In 1955, he started a, a magazine, a National Review, still going today, and the philosophy he, he started that magazine with, his attitude, and he, was, he dealt primarily in the political arena, <clears throat> but his, his attitude was, and this was his definition, he considered himself a conservative, and he considered this is what a conservative is. He says a conservative is a fellow who is standing athwart history yelling stop. Now my point is, Buckley saw himself as standing up because all he saw was the tides of liberalism overtaking his country. And in 1955, he stood up and said, stop no more, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to changing the political course of my country. Now that's just trying to deal with politics. How much more? But if you look at his life, he just died in, I don't know, in the last 10 years. He devoted his entire life. He didn't just say, I'm standing here saying stop, and he just stood there and kept saying stop, 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 stop. No, he devoted his life. He wrote, he spoke, he conjoled, he begged. He did all kinds of activities through the rest of his natural life to try to influence the society that he lived in. That's what Paul's saying when we... When he says here in Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, stand. It, it's make a decision, take your stand. But it's a verb. There are lots of activities to do while you are standing. This is not a, I do this once, I'm done. I've used the example before. You know, the old farmer got married. 20 years later, his wife comes to me and says, you know, you never tell me you love me. And he said, well, why should I? I told you I loved you on our wedding night, and I ain't changed my mind. Well, that, that, that may work in a joke, but it doesn't work in real life. Well, in, in the body of Christ, we need to put the armor on so that we can stand, but it's an ongoing activity of standing. It's not just something that I do once. I've taken my stand. Now I'm done. I can just relax and go do something. No, if, if you're in the military, you know, we're coming up 1st of November, Veterans Day. We honor our veterans. But why do we honor our veterans? You ever thought about it? We honor veterans for one particular reason. They had enough, whatever you call it, gumption, pride, whatever. They took a period of time out of their life and devoted it to national service. We honor them for the rest of their lives. Most veterans don't serve more than a year, two years, four years. It's a short period of time. Very few veterans make it a career and go 30, 40 years. When Christ has called us, he's called us into the army of God. And he's told us to stand athwart history and say, stop to the enemy to the devil, and he's given us a job to do, but we have to, to know how to do it or we're not going to be effective. If, to be honest with you, if, if, if the United States military was in the same shape that a lot of the church, especially here in America, is, they wouldn't train. They'd have weapons that were rusty and dusty and, and no ammunition. And, you know, they'd say, okay, we got to go to a battle. And they'd all say, well, how, how are we going to get there? Well, well let's, let's go jump in the trucks. Well, none of the trucks have fuel. 
The ones that have fuel, they don't start. The batteries are dead. Nobody's done maintenance on them. And when you get there, you don't have the ammunition. You don't have the clothing. You don't have the, the food. How many wars do you think you're going to win that way? Well, to be honest with you, the American church, most of Christians, and I'm going to include myself here, we spend more time watching TV or listening to radio or reading for pleasure than we ever do studying the word, standing in faith, and warring with the enemy in prayer. I guarantee you, we can schedule a, a fellowship dinner after church for in a couple of weeks. We'll have people show up. Some of them won't show up to church. They'll show up to the dinner. But, but even those that show up for church, there'll be a crowd here. We schedule a prayer meeting after church. And this place will empty quicker than you can, than, than, than letting a, a, a fox into a hen house. That ought not be. If food is more important than your prayer life, then your priorities are screwed. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. amen. Now, why do we have to put the whole armor of God on? That we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We dealt with that word last week. That The Greek word there for wiles means to travel with. But it's not traveling with as a companion. It's They're traveling and the devil and all of his imps and minions are traveling with us. But they're off in the woods. They're, they're watching the path that we're on, hoping they can get ahead of us and set an ambush. They're looking for a way into your life to bring death, destruction, disease, whatever. Those are the schemes, the wiles of the devil. We have to, and, and basically when he says put on the whole armor of God, what he's talking about here is putting on the outside what Jesus has already put on the inside of us. Letting the, the, the core traits of Christ of Jesus, the man Jesus, letting his traits come out of us and be represented in our everyday lives. Let's go on to verse 12. Why do we need this? Why do we need to stand against the wiles of the devil? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Just in a couple of verses, Paul has repeated the exact same thought. Take up the armor. Take what Jesus put on the inside of you and let it be represented on the outside of you. Or when the enemy attacks, you have nothing to attack back or to have defend you. We have to wear our Christianity on the outside. We used to have a joke with some friends that I ran around with early in my Christian walk. <clears throat> if it was illegal to be a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? If you hide your, your Christianity well enough, and I'll be, be honest with you, the, the world will tell you we don't want to hear about it. In fact, politically, and I'll, I'll get political here for a moment, the left in, in this nation has now gotten to the point where they don't even talk about freedom of religion. They won't talk about freedom of conscience. All they want to talk about is freedom of worship, which means temporarily, for the time being, we'll give you the freedom to worship inside this building any way you want to. But don't you dare take it out to the street. Don't you dare take it to the public square. Well, that's not what our Constitution guaranteed, and that is certainly not what God guaranteed. God said, if you have a choice between obeying me and obeying man, you better pick me, and I don't care if it costs you your life. Now, you know, fortunately, in our, our nation, we've never been in a position where it had to cost us our life quite literally. But figuratively, it should cost us our life. My life should be completely, totally devoted to serving God. And that, that, that means no matter what my job is, let's face it, you got to have a job. I haven't, unless you're independently wealthy, and if you are, please come see me because I could use a loan. But unless you are independently wealthy, 
you got to work to eat. You got to bring some income in to pay your bills. That doesn't mean just because your job is driving a truck or, or running a computer or keeping books or whatever it is you do. That's your job. That's not your calling. Your calling is to put on the whole armor of God and live out in every aspect of your life who Jesus is in you. If people that you work with don't know you're a Christian, then you're doing something wrong. If, you're, if your spouse doesn't know moment to moment that you're a Christian, now obviously they're going to know you're a Christian, but I'm talking about in your actions. If you're a wife and you're not submitting to your husband, there's a problem. If you're a husband and you're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church, there's a problem. We have rights. My right is to go to heaven. I have that as a right. I have no doubt if I drop dead right now, I'm going to wake up in heaven. But that right gives me a responsibility. Live it or shut up about it. That's why I've said for years, um, I personally don't put a fish on the back of my car. Because if there's a place that my flesh gets the best of me occasionally, it's when I'm driving. And, I, you know, it's not to the point where I tell, tell people they're number one. But sometimes my driving gets a little aggressive. I just don't pay attention. My speedometer goes a little higher than it ought to. I'm a little more aggressive than, than defensive. And I don't really want to advertise to total strangers that I'm a Christian. There's nothing like having somebody come past you and honk their horn and have them tell you you are number one. And then when they get past you, there's that big fish on the back of their car. And you think, oh, great. It's a great witness for Christ. I know. I ought to put the fish on there and then drive like I'm Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm a work in progress. That's all I can say. But he's told us again in verse 13, because we have to deal with the devil, because we have these principalities and powers and, and rulers of darkness, we have to take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand. That's a little bit different. That's the same word for stand, only it has the Greek word anti. It means you're standing against something. You know, I had a, a when I substitute taught when I was pastoring, um, it was a small rural church, didn't make much money. So I had to have a second job. Well, I substitute taught a lot. That way I had control of my schedule. If I needed a day off to do something, I just didn't take any sub assignments. But one school I taught in a lot was uh, the principal had this new educational theory where we never punish bad behavior. We just encourage good behavior. Positive reinforcement. Uh, he made it there about two years, and I'm telling you, after six months, the teachers were ready to go on strike, walk out, go do anything. Because that place was a madhouse. There are lots of positive things you need to do, but there are times when you need to stand in the middle of your path and look the devil in the eye and say, no, no more, no farther, this is it. I take authority over you. You have to stand against him or he will just run over you. It's not all, it's not all, well, I'm just going to, you know, praise and worship the Lord. That's important. I'm just going to make my positive confessions. That's important. There are times when you have to stand against the devil. There, there's, now, there's twice as many stands as withstands. But that doesn't mean that there, that there aren't times when you have to stand against him. But then he says in verse 14, Stand, therefore, again, fourth time, having girded your waist with truth. Well, what is that truth? Well, let's back up to John chapter 8. What is the truth that he wants us to gird our loins with, to gird our waist with? And, and keep in mind, and I've, I've said this before, we, I love teaching on the armor. I love, you know, when our kids were little, we'd get up and go with them and say, okay, now we're going to put on, we're going to shod our feet, and we'd put on our boots, and we'd put on our belt, and put your helmet on, put the breastplate of righteousness on, pick up your, swore, your sword, you do all of that. But we don't want to get so caught up in what Roman armor looked like 
that we forget that this is an actual armor. These are spiritual attributes that I have. They're already on the inside of me. I heard a, a, a preacher friend of mine said one time, you know, there are a lot of people that have never exercised patience in their life and they're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to look at them and say, why were you not more patient with your husband, with your wife, with your kids? And I said, well, I just didn't have patience. And he's going to do like, you know, some of the, the, the shows on. He's going to say, wait a minute. He's going to reach right inside their chest and he's going to pull out this little card. And he says, yeah, you do. There's patience. It's been in your heart all along. See, still got the cellophane on it. Never been opened. All of these attributes are on the inside of us. We need to open them up and use them. Amen. So John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus is, is dealing with, has been dealing with the crowds. Now in verse 31, he's talking to the Jews who are believing. They believe that Jesus is their Messiah. So verse 31, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, you can go to about any college campus in the country, and somewhere you're going to find a, usually a pretty good-sized library, and right above the entrance you're going to have the words inscribed, the truth shall set you free. And the implication is come into our learned presence and find out the truth because we teach the truth and it'll set you free. That's why you hear in politics all the time, what we need is to educate our children because that's the road to prosperity. I know a lot of people that are well-educated. Some, most, are educated way beyond their intellect. You'll get that later. They're well-educated. They may have great jobs. They may have great salaries. They may live in big houses and drive fancy cars, but they're not prospering. You go to the, to, to the rich side of town, you go to the most of the places that they have, you know, the, the five, six, seven thousand square foot house, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you can afford it, go for it. But most of those places, or a lot of those places, there's strife, there's division, their kids are rebellious, their marriage is falling apart, or they're under so much financial pressure that they can't even breathe. That's not prosperity. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking having a big bank account means you are prosperous. Well, let's face it, Al Capone had a lot more money than any of us do. And he was not prospering. He was a thief and a murderer. And unless he repented, which I saw no indication from the life that I've seen that he ever repented, he's in hell today. Yet he was very rich. What is this truth? The truth he just said in the first phrase. If you abide in my word. Now I want to look at that for a second. What word is he talking about? In general, I've always preached that he's talking about the written word, the Bible. And that is true. But, but let's examine it just a little more. What directly in this conversation was happening that Jesus was talking about? And let me... Get over there in my Bible real quick, because I had it in my notes. Jesus, in, in, in verse 31, he started this entire conversation in verse 13. And they're talking about Jesus bearing witness for himself. He's saying, my witness is true. And they're saying, no, if you witness for yourself, we can't go by that, because the law says that you need to have two or three witnesses apart from yourself. Self-witnesses, there's an inherent bias in your own witness. You can ask my wife whether I'm a grand fellow. Some days she'll say yes, some days she'll know, say no. You ask me if I'm a grand fellow, I don't care night or day. I'll always tell you, you betcha, I'm a heck of a guy. I'll usually snort and maybe, you know, swell up a little bit and say, yep, I sure am. Why? Because that's my inherent bias. Well, Jesus is saying, look... Even though I'm bearing witness of myself, I'm, I'm, I'm not lying. My witness is true. And the witness that he is bearing here, in fact, at the end of this, they're going to, to want to take up stones and, and stone him for saying that he's equal to God. 
He claims to be the second person of the Godhead. So what is the word that he's talking about here that we abide in? The word that he's telling us to abide in is this revelation. The, the truth here, and the, and the Greek word for truth here, I'd never looked it up before, but I looked it up this morning and it, it amazed me. That the word there means to not, something that's not hidden. It's the Greek word for hide and with the negative alpha in front of it. So it means not hidden, or I think a better translation says, you shall know the revelation and the revelation shall make you free. What revelation? The revelation of who Jesus really is. And in our case, it's, it's beyond just knowing who Jesus really is. As I said before, there are a lot of people, even unbelievers, will believe that there is a God. And they'll believe that God can do things. God can create miracles. God can do intervene. But do they believe that He wants to in their lives? Rarely. Rarely. If He's God, then, you know, maybe if you beg hard enough, <clears throat> He'll do it. But the revelation for us is that Jesus wants to have this relationship with me. He's done all these things and He's handed me the whole ticket. You know, people get all excited when Powerball or, or Mega Millions or one of the other lotteries gets up to, you know, not too long ago. He got up close to, well, it's been several years. He got up close to a billion dollars was the jackpot. People were pulling money. People that never played the lottery were buying tickets. Why? Well, it may be, you know, 250 million to one odds, but that's a billion dollar prize. If I win it, man, it's worth a dollar's risk or two dollars or whatever it is. Jesus has handed you something better than a lottery ticket. He's handed you eternal life and not just eternal life in the sense that it's going to last forever, but eternal life in that it lasts forever. But the quality is no matter what direction you look at, the quality is the best it can ever be. It's eternally good. Amen. I'm not only not only am I not a sinner, but he's put me in to his kingdom. He's put me into himself so that the same authority that he exercises, I can exercise. You're in John 8. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10. This is, this is, he's getting ready in Matthew 10 to, to dispatch his disciples. Keep in mind, he hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't conquered death and hell. He hasn't, none of these disciples are born again. And yet he tells them in, in Matthew 10, we're going to look at 7 and 8. He's sending them out two by two. And he says, as you go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is his commission to them. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Now if men who aren't born again, they're not filled with the Spirit of God, can go forth by the commission of Jesus and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, I have to look at myself and say, what am I doing? I seem to be a classic underachiever. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, this is the, the, the great commission Jesus, this is after the resurrection, Jesus came and spoke to the disciples saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I have gone, I died for your sins, but not only did I die for your sins, I went in and wrecked hell. I ripped the gates off that place. I whipped the devil, I stuck a chain around his neck, and, and like a Roman emperor, I drug him around hell and said, This guy that used to rule the earth is now my prisoner. He has no power, no authority. He made a show of him openly. That's why Jesus can say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why? Because he took it by conquest. God the Father gave it to him by decree, but he took that decree and conquered hell and conquered earth. And then in verse 19, he looks at the disciples and he says, go therefore, because I have this authority, I want you to go. 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. What was one of the things that he commanded them to do? Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. It's part of our commission. Well, brother, I can't raise the dead. You can if Jesus tells you to. Don't try to start, make your first act of obedience raising the dead, but go lay hands on somebody and just pronounce them. Tell them, I'm going to lay hands on you and you are going to be healed. Well, I don't, I, I don't, know, that, I don't know that I have that kind of a power. You don't have the power. You have the authority. It's the power of Jesus working through your hands. But what he's wondering is, when are you going to take my authority and start laying hands on people and expecting it to happen? Mark 16, same event, just, just uh, put in a little different words or, or from a different angle. He says, these signs will follow those who believe in my name. When you do these acts, when you walk out this putting on this armor, the truth that, is, that, that you have been, or has been revealed to you is that you walk in Jesus' authority. And in His name you can cast out demons, you can speak with new tongues. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse, or John 15, verse 16, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give to you. Maybe we don't have these things showing up in our life because we're not asking anything in His name. Or if we do, our prayers consist of, of um, Hello, my name's Jimmy. Gimme, gimme, gimme. If that's your prayer life, it's not real deep. And then John 16, verse starting in verse 23, he says, In that day, what day? The day we're living in right now. You will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in a figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. Notice this next phrase. I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. When you come and pray and ask in my name, don't, you're, you're not asking Jesus, ask the Father if we can have this. He's not talking to the Father about it. He sits in authority. And when you, say, when you ask in his name, a, a better description is, is you are commanding it in his name. Now, let me give you the warning side of this. You have to be really careful about this because, first of all, this ought to change the way you pray. But we are charged here not to change or control people. You cannot command people to do things in the name of Jesus. Jesus, by His divine authority, gave them free will. And if you start commanding in the name of Jesus for, certain, for people to do certain activities, you have stepped out of faith and you've stepped over into witchcraft and you're going to get in trouble and you're going to get in trouble fast. God did not give us authority to, to control other people's lives. What He gave us authority to do is to bind the devil. To give the angels something to do to go and help the people that the devil is bound up and he's destroying their lives. When you see loved ones or acquaintances or whatever and you see the, the devil coming in and stealing and killing and destroying their lives, you see them backslidden, they're living a life. Quit praying. First of all, quit praying and asking Jesus to do anything. He's sitting on the throne. 
He's not doing a thing about it. He's giving you his authority. He's giving you his power. And he said, you go in my name and you do it. Well, what do I do? First of all, you bind the devil off of them. Strip the blinders off their eyes so they can see the truth. And then when they get a revelation of the truth, they will have a choice to make. Step into the light of the gospel or stay in the darkness. The sad thing is a lot of people choose to stay in the darkness because the light scares them. But that's all we can do. But if you do it, a lot will step into the light. Amen? Now, the, the, the example here, one of the best ones, go to Acts chapter 3. In verse 1 through 11, I'm not going to read it all, but Peter and James, or Peter and John, came into the temple. They saw this man that had been lame, lame from his birth. He's been begging for years. Jesus passed this man all the time coming into the temple. But Peter came by one day in verse 12, and when Peter saw this man, he said, the guy asked him for some alms. Hey, I can't work. I need some money. He said, well, I don't have any money on me right now, but what I do have is the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, stand upright and be healed. And he grabbed him by the hand, he pulled him up, and the man was totally, completely healed. And the crowd was amazed. People were aghast. This is a man that we know. He has been lame since he was born. And suddenly we see him walking and leaping and celebrating that the lame is now walking. Peter, in verse 12, says Peter saw all these people and he responded to the people because the people are looking at Peter and John saying, these guys are something. He said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? If you drop down to verse 16... He said, in his name, what name? The name of Jesus. Through faith in his name, through faith in the name of Jesus, has this man been made strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. We have to take his words and use his name and, and not just pray, oh God, Heal this man. What do you expect Jesus to do? Now, I don't have time to go back there, but go back sometime and read in, in the Old Testament about the two occasions when Moses came to the rock and the nation needed water. This is a type of dealing with Jesus because Jesus was the rock that followed the nation of Israel in the wilderness. When he first came to the rock, the Lord told Moses, he said, take your staff and strike that rock and water will come out of it. That's Jesus going to the cross, burying our sins. He was struck, and the river of life came out of that action. But the second time they encountered that rock, the Lord said, You speak to the rock, and water will come forth. What did uh, Moses do? He took his staff, and he whacked it a second time. And that didn't work, so he whacked it a second time. Well, God blessed the children of Israel, even through Moses's unbelief and his disobedience, he brought water. But it cost Moses the ability to go in. Why? Because Jesus had already been to the cross. Don't send him back to the cross again. He's not crawling back up there for you. When you pray, oh God, heal them, you're discounting that he went to the cross and paid the price for their healing. Quit praying for people to be healed Command health to their bodies. Lay your hands on them and declare to them that Jesus has made you well. It's a finished spiritual fact. They are healed. Are we, do we have enough guts to lay hands on them and see that manifest in their body? Same way with praying for people to be saved. Oh God, he, save them. What do you want him to do? He's already died. No, he's told us, go preach the gospel. It's the gospel, it's the preaching of the gospel till revelation comes that gets people saved. Not Jesus intervening. 
Now, though, you can pray for the Holy Spirit to move on people. That is the function of, of the Holy Spirit. But we have authority. And we have to, that, that's part of taking up that armor. Everything that the armor, the traits that we're going to look at in the coming weeks, everything that Christ has done for us, that he wants us to display on the outside, they all are anchored by the fact that Jesus has already done it. And let me give you the last place where he's given us authority. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, speaking of God, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? There, there goes the, the, the theology that, um, oh Lord, I lost the name, um, Watchtower. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that Jesus was uh, Michael the archangel. God never said to any angel, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus was not an angel. He is the second person of the Godhead, a perfect man. But then he makes this general statement after he says that. Are they not, speaking of the other angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Angels exist in this world to minister for us. When we speak God's word, it gives the angels something that they can go and work with. The example here, um, and you can go back there if you want to, it's 2 Kings chapter 6. This is where Elisha, Elisha got involved in politics. I know that's verboten in, in modern thinking, but he got involved in politics in, in ancient Israel. And he would go to the king of Israel and he'd say, look, the Syrian king is going to do this and this right here. So you can set an ambush over here and, and catch him. God played the devil's game. He would set ambushments against. And, and the king of Syria knew, I had a spy. <clears throat> Everything I say in my council chambers, the king of Syria or the king of Israel knows it before we ever enact it. I'm going to start whopping some heads off till I find the spy. And finally, somebody got wise enough and said, there's no spy in the camp. Elisha's telling the king of Israel what to do. So the king of Syria said, well, I can take care of that. Let's go take care of Elisha. We'll cut the head off the man that knows what we're doing. And in 2 Kings 6, chapter 14, his servant came out. And in verse 14, this king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. His servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He stood there, it's me and Elisha, and I'm looking out, and I got a whole army arrayed against me. He's a little nervous. And Elisha prayed, and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Remember over in the Gospels when we talked about knowing the truth, the revelation? It's the same principle here. It said, God, reveal to my servant who you really are in this circumstance. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the, the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Because Elisha's saying, there's more for us than are, there, there are of them. And I know his servant, one, two, thousands. Hi, man, he, he ate too much pizza for supper last night. He's just, I can count. But then when he got opened his eyes, he saw this army that the Syrian king has sent is just a pittance compared to the army God's got for us. Well, how much more will God do that for you? Well, I don't know that I want to pick a fight with the devil. You're already in a fight with the devil. You don't have to pick one. He hates your guts. You start doing anything for God, he's going to come after you. You might as well get armed and fight back. Otherwise, he's going to eat your lunch and take your nickel for milk. I know I really dated myself on that one, didn't I? This is, let me, I want to read this quote. This is by Arthur Pink, and I changed it to make it apply to us. But he, Arthur Pink said this, he said, Many Christians are living far below their privileges. 
Well, let me translate the Roberts translation. Almost all Christians are living far below their privileges. We fail to apprehend the wondrous provisions which God has made for us. We are walking far too much by sight, occupied with the difficulties of life and those opposing us. We need to quit walking by sight and walk by faith. Paul said that in the New Testament. We walk by faith, not by sight. Quit looking at your circumstances and being overwhelmed by your circumstances and start looking at, at what God has provided for you and all of the, the, the weapons and the, and the um, provisions that he's, not only has he made them available, but they're in your storehouse. All you got to do is to go to the, to the cabinet, open the door, get the weapon out, load it up and go start shooting the enemy. We should not be browbeaten or upbraided. That will do no good, for unbelief is not relieved by such a method. Unbelief, to, if you get right down to it, it's not failing to believe what God said. It's putting more stock in your circumstances than what God said is true. Second, our alarm is to be quieted with calm and confidence. Fear not, backed up with, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Shows fear is needless. We should not fear. And then third, definite prayers to be made for the shrinking one, even if it's yourself, that the Lord will operate on and in him, for God alone can open our spiritual eyes to see the sufficiency of his provision for each of us. We need to pray and ask God for our own selves. Give me a revelation of who I am in Christ. Give me a revelation of what my authority is and how to operate in that authority in my life so that I can influence the people around me to see them come into, into a greater communion or, or be, their lives be aligned greater to, to what God's said it. Let me close with this. This is Psalm 34. The title to it, David's title, was The Happiness of Those Who Trust in God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Notice it does not say I will bless the Lord when times are good. At all times. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. You know, when, when, when um, um, Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God hit that, pl that place to the point where the priest could not minister. When, when Moses went up on the mountain, he came down off the mountain and his face shone to where the people wanted to put a, a, a covering over his face because they didn't want to, to see the glory of God. Well, we've had greater experiences. Jesus said in the New Testament that the greatest prophet to ever live was John the Baptist. And the least in my kingdom is greater than John. That means anything that you think was much of any comport that Moses or any of the Old Testament prophets and kings, whatever, did, you, you have greater authority. You have greater weapons than any of those men or women had. Verse 5, they looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Are troubles going to come? Yes. God will save you from all of them. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. You don't have to worry about what the enemy's got. You need to let the enemy worry about the angel of the, of the Lord who encamps around you. This is the same angel of the Lord that showed up to battle one day and 186,000 men were dead by the end of the battle. And not one human being struck a blow. I've been in some fights in my day. Thankfully, I'm older and wiser. I don't fight anymore. But I've been in some fights. I've won a few. I lost a lot. 
But I can't imagine somebody taking a sword and killing 186,000 men in one battle. And yet that's what your God did for the, for the Old Testament saints. And you're greater than they are. You stand in greater authority and have greater privileges than they are. But you also have greater responsibilities than they do. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com. 